So today's speaker is um, Peter Williams, who's going to tell us about the beginning of life and treatment of the unborn, and Peter Mays to tell us about uh, stem cells and contraception. So, Peter. Marvellous, thanks very much. Uh, for those of you who are wondering, the, the, this is a picture of acorns. Yeah, they are um, at least potential trees. Unborn, <laughs> Unborn trees, yes. Uh, we might come back to uh, an acorn-related illustration later. Um, this is, again, as with a lot of these that we've been finding in this series, huge ethical issues that it's somewhat sort of silly to try and uh, make a pretense at covering in 20 minutes. Um, but nonetheless, I hope I have a few uh, useful angles on this to spark your thinking, and I will focus mainly on um, the sort of uh, issue of uh, abortion and treatment of the, uh, the young human organism in the womb. Here's a sort of underlying um, ethical argument uh, that I think is very relevant to this area. The first premise uh, is really a combination of two separate moral claims, and uh, as long as you think one of those moral claims works, the argument would go through, you don't need both of them. Um, But I've put here premise one, um, this really comes from Immanuel Kant, um, trying to put Jesus's golden rule into philosophical language, saying you shouldn't treat a person as merely a means to an end. You shouldn't treat a, a person as just a tool to get something done that you value. You've got to value them in and of themselves. Or as Jesus says, uh, love your neighbour as yourself. And Or it is wrong to take a person's life without sufficient reason. So it's not claiming that it's always just absolutely wrong to take another person's life, um, but that it is wrong to do so without a sufficient justification. Your sort of starting point is that you're wanting to be reticent about taking life, i.e. thou shall not murder. Premise two is that if, if and when the organic life of a human being is also a person then premise one would apply to them. Conclusion, therefore, if and when the organic life of a human being is also a person, then you should not treat that life as merely a means to an end, nor should you take that life without sufficient reason. And a lot of uh, the difficulty in trying to apply this sort of underlying argument to issues of treatment of the unborn and so on resolves around this if and when, if and when, and how do you decide, and how does your worldview affect how you make judgments about that kind of thing? So that is a very uh, crucial and contested premise there, the if and when. Now, Leviticus 18.21, and William Blake's uh, illustration thereof here, uh, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Don't sacrifice your children. And you might think, well, that's just for sort of ancient biblical times when people went around sacrificing children to their gods willy-nilly. Daily Mail report from the 1st of March this year. uh, Headlines, doctors, quote, should have the right to kill unwanted or disabled babies at birth as they're not a real person claims former Oxford academic. Philosopher and medical ethicist Francesca Minerva 
Uh, Minerva asked, uh, argues that killing a newborn is little different from aborting in the womb. Even a healthy baby could have its life snuffed out if the mother decides she can't afford to look after it, Dr. Minerva suggests, etc., etc. Um, two paragraphs from the report. Doctors should have the right to kill newborn babies because they are disabled, too expensive, or simply unwanted by their mothers, an academic with links to Oxford University has claimed. Francesca Minerva, philosopher and medical ethicist, argues, a young baby is not a real person, and so killing it in the first few days after birth is little different from aborting it in the womb. Writing the Journal of Medical Ethics, Dr Minerva and her co-author, a University of Milan bioethicist, argue that after birth abortion, um, this is the news speak for infanticide, after birth abortion, should be permissible in all cases in which abortion is. They state that like an unborn child, a newborn has yet to develop hopes, goals, dreams, and so on. While clearly human is not a person, someone with a moral right to life. So this, this is a crucial distinction in medical ethical debates in this area, the distinction between being a human and being a person. Uh, you might be minded to think that this is a distinction without a difference, that if one is a human, one is a person. But there are people who are minded to think that this is a very crucial distinction. As a philosopher is wont to say, well, it depends what you mean by. And it's not just being pedantic. Um, people's lives really can hang in the balance on what you mean by. Is the correct way to define a person in terms of what X can do or in terms of what X is? Uh, do you say X is a person because it can develop, have hopes, goals and dreams, etc.? Or do you say X is a person because whether or not it can do X, Y, Z, it is or has a soul, a mind, a spirit made in the image of God, say, from a Christian worldview. And that might make a very big difference to how you receive that kind of ethical advice that was being reported in the Daily Mail. Here's another three separate questions. Uh, A, when does organic life first exist, for example, in the womb? Well, I suppose the, the egg, the sperm independently are, are living organisms. Well, you know, they're alive, in a sense, are they? Um, certainly when they come together, there's life. Um, but B, when does the organic life of an individual human organism first begin? And those are not necessarily the same point. And C... When does an individual human person first exist in the womb? And again, that may or may not be the same thing. And turning to biblical verses, this is perhaps the most famous sort of verse to turn to in this area from Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. I think particularly when you're looking at poetic passages like this, it seems to me that the, the sort of biblical theological data really underdetermines the answer to questions A, B, and C. Um, they certainly put an emphasis on the value of life. They certainly would indicate that personhood does start in the womb, but I don't think you can push um, biblical passages like this to the point of, of answering all of the 
sort of modern questions that we're wanting to ask with such distinctions as A, B, and C. The mind-body problem feeds into this area a lot, of course. Um, is there anything real about a person, in other words, something that's essential to their personhood, over and above their brain and or their body? Do we have minds or souls or spirits that are just more than just our functioning brains? Well, the traditional and, has to be said, I think, biblical answer, of course, is yes. Um, there is something more about a person some variety of what's called dualism. There is a distinction between mind or soul and body. Or, on the other hand, you could say no. Um, what's often called physicalism. Or just nothing but a physical organism. However, just as there's more than one physicalist account of mind, you know, naturalists disagree with each other over their different competing naturalistic accounts of what mind is, so also there's more than one dualist account of mind, and these can make a difference here. So we return to our ABC questions with this mind-body question in the background. Uh, given physicalism, um, A, when does organic life first exist? Well, you, I suppose you could say as soon as sperm and egg fuse at the very least. Um, B, when does the organic life of an individual human organism exist? Well, as soon as it's differentiated from the placenta, what becomes the placenta, as soon as it's sort of uh, embedded in the womb, as soon as it's no longer going to become twins, if it does that at some stage. Or C, when does an individual human person first exist? Given physicalism, well, you could, I suppose, well argue for any answer from A or B or even... Well, a newborn baby still isn't a person until it can do X, Y, Z, and so on. On the other hand, if you look at the different varieties of dualism and then try and apply that, there's a difference between um, property dualism and substance dualism. Um, Substance dualism says that there's a, a, an immaterial thing that is you and this immaterial thing has certain immaterial properties. Uh, property dualism says there are immaterial properties to the person but there's no immaterial substance. It's, it would be your, your body would be the substance, the thing that has the properties and it would have various non-physical properties but there's no non-physical you as it were. And there are varieties of substance dualism, uh, Thomism, named after St. Thomas Aquinas in particular, but going particularly back to sort of Aristotelian thought, where you treat the soul as more sort of the form of the developing body. Or Cartesian dualism, named after René Descartes. Um, you probably imagine the soul being sort of directly created by God uh, to sort of, with the intention of it conjoining with a particular body at some point. Or emergent dualism, defended today by people like William Hasker, um, who would see the, the soul as more sort of indirectly created by God, by laws that connect appropriate physical substrates to the appearance of an interconnected mind. I.e., when you get a, a sufficiently complicated neuro, neurological structure, then a mind that is the mind of that neurological structure will come into being in cooperation with it. So there's lots of disagreements here 
And then you try and apply some of that to the, our ABC questions. And again, uh, questions A and B probably receive pretty much the same answer as before. C, when does an individual human person first exist? Well, depending on what type of dualist you are, if you are uh, the sort of Thomistic type of dualist, you might well say individual human person exists from A, as soon as the sperm and the egg fuse and you've got a new body forming with the form of the body. All the way through to, perhaps if you're some sort of emergent dualist, um, maybe quite late on, when you've got a sufficiently complicated neurological structure in place, when there's a brain for the soul to relate to. But certainly, notice, you're going to draw the line earlier on a dualist account than the physicalist who says, well, never mind about babies late in the womb, just before they're born, even after they're born they're not people. You are, on a dualist account, going to see the life in the womb as being a person at some stage within the womb, at the very least. So, which type of dualism you pick might have a, an effect on, on how early or, or later in that process you would see personhood emerging. But you could quite plausibly see it emerging earlier than maybe a physicalist would. Uh, so your worldview here can make a, a difference on how you think it's then sensible to treat that life. Now, of course, it's one thing to be confident, say, that dualism is true. Uh, you know, to be confident that there's more to your mind than just your body. It's quite another thing to think you're confident over which version of dualism is true. Now, I've spent, I've spent a lot of time in the past thinking, you know, am I a Thomistic dualist? or a Cartesian dualist, or an emergent dualist. I know it's kept you up at late at night as well, obviously. Um, <laughs> this is the sort of things that keep students awake. But, um, you know, uh, none of that means that I don't have this fundamental certainty that it's you know, pretty obvious to me that my mind is more than my brain. Um, I'm just a little bit hazier on exactly how and when the mind appears and how it relates to the body. That's a sort of separate question. If you were confident about which type of dualism was true, you could make decisions about things like abortion based on that. So if you were confident that Thomistic dualism was true, you would be against even very early abortion. If you were confident of Thomistic dualism being true. But what if you're not confident about which version of dualism is true? Well, even if you're agnostic about this, there's a moral principle that's really key here that means... Even recognising that you don't know the answer to something that's morally um, uh, significant can play a strong role in arguing about how you should behave in practice. This is the principle of moral caution. And I like illustrating it like this. Supposing I'm a soldier and I'm taking part in a live fire exercise... Just, it's my own side. We're having exercises to prepare us for going into battle. They're just about to send us, so we're now using live ammunition. You know, we really could kill each other if we're not careful. Uh, soldiers do do this sometimes. So I've got uh, a live hand grenade here. And I'm crawling up to this bunker. And this thought process goes through my mind. Now, 
the chaps on my side who are pretending to be the Taliban or whatever, they might be in that bunker. They might not be. I don't know whether or not there's anyone in the bunker. So here's what I'll do. I'll take out my live hand grenade, pull the pin out, pop it through the window. It'll go off. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> exactly. From your reaction, you intuitively get the point. Of course, that is quite the reverse of what I should do. What I should do is I should think, I don't know whether there's anyone in the bunker or not. Therefore, the last thing I should do is throw a live hand grenade in there. Because if I'm wrong about it being empty, the potential drawbacks of taking the action far outweigh any potential gain to my training of learning how to use hand grenades or whatever. Well, likewise, with if you're not sure whether or not the life in the womb is a person or not, you shouldn't think, well, I don't know whether it's a person yet. It'll be fine to kill it. You think, I don't know whether it's a person yet. I really ought to play safe, unless I've got some very strong outweighing reason for so doing. Uh, at the very least, this sort of puts a prima facie case for not aborting. So you might revise our argument by slipping in this uh, principle of uncertainty about when to invoke premise three. That is, if and when it's a person, then you should treat it according to the moral rules that we had to get the conclusion that therefore we should act as if premise one applied to the unborn from the earliest possible time. Let me try out on you a couple of um, completely separate lines of argument for treating the unborn with a certain sort of measure of um, respect or whatever, um, completely independent of any thoughts you might have about its status as a person or not. Because you can have good reasons to refrain from treating X in a certain way, despite it being impossible to wrong X by so treating it. Um, And perhaps there are reasons uh, germane in this area. So let me show you. Here's a picture of a chunk of matter. It's a hunk of marble. Who here would um, be happy to use this chunk of matter for target practice? Okay, I'd be happy, yep. Um, What about this chunk of matter? He said, showing them another chunk of marble. It is a chunk of marble that's carved into a very beautiful statue, but it's just another chunk of matter. Same matter. Who here would be happy to use this chunk of matter for target practice? Oh, no one's hands has gone up. And yet, you wouldn't be wronging the marble by shooting it, would you? Um, how about this chunk of matter? So showing them a picture of a newborn baby. Now, even you know, trying to abstract yourself from the thought that this could be a person, even if you were unsure about whether or not this is a person, again, would you feel happy using this chunk of matter for... Surely, you know, anything that was causing you to refrain from shooting the, the marble statue would kind of apply in spades for shooting this even more intricate, complicated, and beautiful physical structure. We believe, for example, we have duties to care for the environment, even though we can't wrong the environment by failing to care for it. 
So I have to go back to a previous week. Uh, you could impose on me a duty to water your flowers for you while you're away on holiday. And my subsequent failure to water your flowers harms the flowers, uh, but it doesn't morally wrong the flowers. <coughs> I'm not trampling over the flowers' rights by failing to water them. Nevertheless, I am doing a moral wrong to you, their ultimate owner. You see, that might apply to how we treat the ultimate owner of life, whether or not we're wronging the life by treating it in certain ways. Back to acorns. I said we'd get there. An acorn, uh, it's a potential tree. We're pretty sure it's not a tree, but we're pretty sure it's a potential tree. Um, Suppose, you know, uh, great-grandfather so-and-so bequeaths in his will to your family some acorns from his favorite acorn tree. And he says, I want you to grow an acorn in your back yard so that future generations of my family can appreciate the beauty of the tree, can shelter under its shade in the summer, blah, blah, blah. Well, failing to grow the tree or uh, growing the tree only to chop it down for firewood, I don't think you could say you've harmed the tree by doing that, but would you have harmed great-great-grandfather? Now, that said, there could, of course, be circumstances in which great-great-grandfather might well understand you're using the acorn or the tree for purposes other than those that he had expressly said he was giving it to you for. You know, I'm sure he would understand that in that really cold winter of 87 or whatever, when the family were on the verge of freezing to death, and you decide, I suppose there's nothing for it, we'll have to chop down that acorn tree that great-great-grandfather gave us in order to save everyone's lives. I'm sure he would understand. Well, fine. But again, it seems to be the kind of argument that would, if life is given with a certain intent from its ultimate provider, there's a prima facie case for using it in the way that it's expressly um, said to be given to us. Um, Psalm 127, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. There's a sort of general biblical understanding of, of life as a gift from God, as children as a gift to be received gratefully from God. And at the risk of doing moral wrong to God, who intends children to be received as a heritage, we might say we have at least a prima facie duty to receive and treat the unborn child, that, that just, or at least those that naturally occur, uh, with uh, respect, irrespective of questions about whether or not we might be wronging the unborn, whether or not it's a person um, yet. Um, But it's only a prima facie case. This is open to being overturned by saying, but there's a sufficient reason. You know, it's it's not all killing is murder. There's a sufficient reason for overriding the moral principles that we started with, uh, that we might be applying even in practice, if not in in principle, or even this kind of case of, are we harming God, if not the, the person or the unborn Um, if it's only a potential life at this stage uh, thus far. Okay, I've gone a little over time, but um, 
Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. So our minds going. Some questions. Matt, I don't think you defined this person during your talk. You're sort of implicit in what it's in some of your arguing. Could you give an explicit definition of what a person is, rather than what a person can do or what rights it has? Yes. So, I, I mean, I, I wanted particularly to highlight that this is a, a contested issue uh, and that the definition you give has big knock-on effects. Uh, I think I would say, first of all, um, I'm a dualist. I'm not quite sure which type. If you forced me to put money on it, I'd be an emergent dualist. And my definition would biblically be something along the lines of a person... Um, uh, is a, is a soul, is an immaterial substance with the ultimate capacities for reason, moral action, free choice, relationship, etc. Those things that we would pick out as, as the image of God above and beyond um, other animals, um, which is uh, naturally conjoined and, uh, with a body, naturally embodied. That's its natural state. So we look forward to the resurrection of our bodies in the future, not a sort of going to a platonic heaven, um, although we'll be disembodied in the interim state. So, yes, I w- my phrasing there is with the ultimate capacities for. So I don't say who gets to be treated as human and not by whether they can do X, Y, and Z, because their failure to do X, Y, and Z might be because they've got a disabled body, which won't, won't do it. But in the resurrection state... Maybe they will not have a body that prevents them from expressing their personhood in its full orbedness, as it were. Um, so that ultimate capacity for is the kind of way round, uh, in a sense, combining that what you are counts first, but what you are is something that has the ultimate capacities to X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, supposing you're faced with a woman who has miscarried mm. at uh, early in the pregnancy, say eight weeks, would you recognise her right to grieve that loss as if it was a real person? Well, I'd certainly recognise her right to feel what she is feeling, and, I, and even if, and I would lean upon um, more knowledgeable medical minds uh, for pinning down things like what stage of development is a fetus at that stage, but even if she were, um, on my view, incorrect to think that she'd lost a person, I don't think that would be a, a helpful pastoral approach necessarily to, to try and have this big philosophical conversation with her and try and convince her that it, your child wasn't a person yet. Um, she has certainly lost the potential child. She, she, she was expecting having this personal relationship and she has lost the possibility of that future personal relationship um, and it is right and good to grieve that as it were um, I don't really think that the, the sort of deeper philosophical question of was it a person at the point at which I lost it is the really relevant thing the really relevant thing is I've lost this relationship that I was looking forward to having and I'm no longer going to have it uh, and there's no longer going to be this third person in this relationship within the family that reflects the trinity of the Godhead and 
and so on and so forth. So, so there's plenty to be grieved, even if not the sort of underlying point of why it wasn't developed yet enough to have had its soul popped in or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, thanks so much because I'll lose to think about what my mind is quite a lot of this is sort of I could have a view on this, I could mm. think about this, but I'm trying to more about how decisions actually get made mm. in society and we have a situation where we have virtually abortion on demand. Yeah. I'm sure lots of good can learn lots of good. Lots of very sinister characters, but Minerva worries me a lot because mm. uh, this distinction between you know, the infanticide mm. that the considered possible, permissible, mm. uh, the distinction to me is you know, right up to, to, to birth the woman's right argument mm. suggests for some reason it is her property exclusively as new life in the womb. Yeah. And she should have predominance of decision making. Mm. As mm. soon as that life is outside of the womb, who's responsible? Because normally someone else is considered vulnerable and mm. if the person has malevolent views to that vulnerable member of society, society protects that. Yeah. And I would be very concerned if Dr. Minerva's yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, perhaps the more practically relevant thing is who actually does make the decisions or, or form the underlying basis on which people then make the decisions. Who gets to promulgate the definition of who gets to count as a person? Um, you know. And it, it's very worrying, considering that we've sort of been there before in Western Europe as well. You know, let's start tweaking our definitions of who gets to count as a person so that the disabled, as she was mentioning in her article, don't, get, no, don't count as people anymore, at least when they're very young. Or those that we can't afford, you know, useless, produ- you know, useless producers, whatever the Nazi phrase was, you know. Um, this particular ethicist is not necessarily coming from that direction, but it just raises all of these. I think who gets to defend the definitions that people will just assume without thinking about it is really key. And, and, and having voices that force people to think about the definitions in the media, in the university, and so on, uh, is perhaps even more powerful than, than the actual who gets to actually make the vote on it in the House of Commons or whatever, because they will be voting off their worldview, off the definitions that they're assuming. I think we have to move on. I think we can carry on talking on this for some while. Mm. Uh, Let's thank you for your